spinning back to the open side. Karim Bete, up the goal here to Simon, who's quick. Pete Simon looking for Karim Bete, back to Simon. Oh, that is wonderful. That is wild. That is amazing from the Wallabies. Good evening and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby, where the people's podcast providing a platform for rugby lovers to come together and support the game that's played in heaven. I'm your host, Ando, and with me is Lockie. Mitch, unfortunately, is unavailable again this week. He does send his love and we have some questions and comments from him later in the pod. But Lockie, I have to ask, where were you when Courtney Vine scored the winning penalty to send the Matildas through to the semi-final of the Women's World Cup? Uh, I was at... Chemside West on Trouts Road at my partner's mum's place. And we had six of us in there watching the game going absolutely ballistic. We can safely say this is a pro rugby podcast, but Without if you're doubt. not getting around the Matildas this week, you haven't got a soul. It's been so much fun to see the girls go and go well. And as far as penalty shootouts go, I haven't seen a better one. Mate, it was absolutely incredible. I was at a uh, friend's place with my boys and kids and we had like a whole bunch of families around. I had to leave in about the 70th minute to come home to get ready for a dinner. And I made my wife drive to go pick up our friends and go to the restaurant. And we sat outside the restaurant in the car watching the penalty shootout for 20 minutes on my phone, just cheering and getting behind every save and goal. It was absolutely a blast. Loved it. And, mate, we're a rugby podcast first and foremost, but you just have to appreciate what these women are doing for sport in Australia and particularly women and children getting behind and seeing these incredible female athletes. It's the best. And we're seeing the TV ratings and we're seeing the social media figures. 7.2 million people tuned in for that game. At the peak of viewing, 7.2 million watching a penalty shootout getting behind a country. I truly don't think we've ever seen a sporting team unite this country as it has in the past couple of weeks. It even topped the viewing numbers for Kathy Freeman's win at the Olympics back in 2000. This is how big of a deal it is. So what can we do as sports fans to tap into that and help push this into women's sport in rugby, even broadly into the whole rugby community? How can we tap this enthusiasm from what yep. is a, a totally revolutionary event? I think part of it is uh, putting your money where your mouth is. And if you talk up a big game about liking women's sport or enjoying watching the Matildas, go out and buy some merch. Go out and support the team directly by giving money back into the thing that you are consuming and enjoying. I mean, I'm deliberately wearing my loud and proud Wallaroos jersey here because we we love the Wallaroos here on Pick and Drive Rugby. But, man, I, where the Matildas are right now, they are outselling the Socceroos jerseys two to one at this point in time. You've already spoken about the audience figures. It's just so incredibly exciting to see women having the opportunity and the recognition is probably the better word, the recognition that they have deserved for a long time. And I mean, yeah, we're a rugby podcast, but the reason why I wanted to start with this is because number one, it's an amazing sporting event in happening in Australia right now. But number two, this gives us an idea of what women's rugby can be in the future with appropriate funding and appropriate pathways for quality athletes to be supported along their professional journey. And I mean, at this point in time, 
we still don't have a roadmap yet for what women's rugby's progression or pathway will be towards the 2029 World Cup. Um, and it just shows, yeah, where where women's rugby in Australia could be with adequate funding. For sure. And this now, this becomes a benchmark for not just women's sporting events, but all sporting events in Australia. It's probably going to be the most watched event we've ever hosted in this country. Yeah. And that's incredible, but it also becomes aspirational. Mm. So the amount of money that's been put into things like the um, the Tilly's training facility down in Latrobe um, in Melbourne, there's, I think there's almost 40 million, 42 million being pumped into that. We're seeing mirrors of that now with Ballymore being redevelopment as the high performance center. So we're seeing high performance facilities for our women athletes and our women stars coming through and it's paying off. We're seeing dividends from the Tillies. Now as rugby fans and as sports fans, let's channel that enthusiasm and that passion into our Wallaroos, into our women's sevens girls, because there's so much coming up. We've got WXV around the corner this year. There's an Olympics on offer where the women are going to have a decent crack at the gold. And there are so many big things on the horizon heading into then 2025 with the men's Lions Tour at home, Women's World Cup over in England, and then 27 and 29. So this is now the time. We've got this brilliant benchmark that's been set, and we need to aspire to this and more. It's such a great opportunity in front of us. Well, I hope that everybody at RA has been sitting up and taking notice and seeing the groundswell of popular support that there is for women's sport, particularly within Australia, but also in a global sense, because it drives that idea of there being a business case for investment in women's rugby, which is understandably a primary um, element of the decision-making process within RA, as cash-strapped as they are. But I love the aspirational element of what you were talking about there, Lockie. So why don't we move into what we're going to actually be talking about? Two things for this episode of the pod and they are the rugby world cup eddie jones like what's going on i think we could just title that section of the pod what are you thinking eddie <laughs> and we're going to try and unpack and figure that one out as the first part and then secondly we're going to touch base on some of the international games across the last week or two to give us a little bit of an insight into the form of some of the teams that we're going to be coming up against at the rugby world cup now, the final thing that I will say before we move on is this. We have two regular calls to action. The first one is to join our Discord channel, which is the best Australian rugby community going around. The link is on any of our social media profiles, so make sure you get involved and sign up there. And then lastly, please consider going to ko-fi.com slash pickanddriverugby and supporting us with a one-off or monthly payment. We do this for love, not money, but every little bit counts. So thank you so much. And lucky. Why don't we move on to the Rugby World Cup announcement? Thursday's squad announcement of the Australian team that is travelling to represent the country at the Rugby World Cup in France was preceded by a series of frustrating and factually fallacious articles promoted by journos all across the sporting landscape claiming they had inside scoops on the Wallabies squad announcement. Now, one thing is for certain... It added to the chaos of the announcement where Eddie Jones omitted some of the biggest names in Australian rugby from the team. Michael Hooper, not on the plane. Quade Cooper, not on the plane. And other stalwarts like Jed Holloway, Tom Wright, Reese Hodge and others weren't making the team. So I've got to ask, mate, 
This is really simple. What the hell is Eddie Jones thinking? Can you see a logic to this madness? Look, I've got to start by saying if anyone had accurately picked this squad before a closed media release was put out, they're kidding themselves. No one has accurately gone through ahead of time and said, yep, all these changes are going to happen. This is the squad that we're going with. It honestly melted my brain seeing it come through. I think I got eyes on it at 3.30 on the Thursday before it came out uh, during Stan Sports thing at 6.30. And I had to take myself outside, go for a walk, pat the dog, just sit in silence and shake a little bit. I was totally blindsided by some of the calls. But I think if we start looking through the bigger missions and the big names and the the sweeping changes, you have to say, there is an underlying narrative that Eddie Jones is building, which is I've given people a chance. Now here's my path forward and it's youth. It's exuberance and it's people who, in Eddie's mind, haven't lost games and haven't got those battle scars. So, I mean, what's your first take on it? That's what I'm trying to see through for Eddie. What was your initial response? Yeah, my initial response was one of just shock and surprise. I mean, I can understand Michael Hooper not being there, and I'd even floated it in the previous week's episode, or previous week's pod, being I wonder if he's not going to make it because of potentially the longer-term nature of his injury than what we'd heard. The one that really surprised me was Quade Cooper not being present. He'd basically been the first choice previously, and it was only when um, Carter Gordon really shone in his opportunities that, Gordon surpassed him. So I was just thinking, okay, well, Cooper will be second string then. So Carter Gordon will be uh, first five half picked and Cooper will be the backup. He'll be on the bench as 22 or something like that. But but no, we literally have one listed fly half within the team with Ben Donaldson as a utility for some reason. I don't get why you just don't put him as a fly half option or an outside back. Like I, I don't understand that. Um, yeah, it's, it's just confusing. There are mind games amongst mind games. And I'm sure if you were able to sit down with Eddie with no cameras, with no recording devices and just go, mate, can, can you just explain this to me? And I, I'm not going to share it, but can, can you just explain? I'm sure there's a logic to it. I'm sure there's a rationale, but I don't see it and I don't understand it. And the big one for me that I'd love to just get your thoughts on to start with, I'd actually kind of jump right to the end. Oh, next slide. Uh, we have, well, where are they? Uh, I don't know where I put them. We have um, Josh Kemeny. Why is Josh Kemeny being listed as a utility? Is he genuinely expected to fill in on the wing? Like, what's going on there? So let's nip this utility one in the butt. I'm not sure if anyone in World Rugby believes that they're filling utility roles, except perhaps Eddie Jones. Well, when was the last time we had a utility? We're probably looking at the 2011 Rugby World Cup when Radiki Samo jumped on the wing against Russia. From memory, so it's been it's been generation. That's a generational shift since the last time we've needed to do that, and that was purely out of necessity. And if we're remembering correctly from the 2011 squad, there were a lot of interesting calls made in that squad that forced those changes. So, for example, like picking only one recognised seven in Pocock, and then we got dusted by the Irish because Benny McCalman's playing out of position, and they just flooded our breakdown and held us up all the time. So there are these things happen in. You know, you know, break in case of emergency moments. 
but we've we've got a squad to pick, so we pick players, and I'm constantly baffled by the utility rhetoric. You mentioned Ben Donaldson before. He's a he's a fly half fullback cover. Josh Kemeny is a back rower who, at a pinch, if everyone goes down, jumps on the wing. But I think we know where they're really going to be ending up playing. Yeah, and so I guess I, I don't see the point of the mind games there, but you know what? That's almost minimal compared to other stuff that's going on. So let's look at this from a whole squad approach. And with the exodus of some of the most experienced players within the team, we have some really concerning stats. I mean, typically, typically international teams go into the World Cup season or the World Cup squad, I should say, with the aim to have the majority of their team around the golden area of like 40 to 50 caps as an average, international caps. We have an average of 20 international caps within our entire 33-man squad. You take out James Slipper, that average drops down to 16.9, okay? Now, let's just go to provincial caps. So I'm talking super rugby, I'm talking premiership, whatever it is, it's got to be kind of the premier competition within the country that's being played in. Now, the average provincial caps among the whole squad is 67. That's not many at all. Mark Nwanganitsa-Wase nearly has that himself, and he's only been around a few years. The average provincial caps without Skelton, Nick White, and James Slipper is 53. So it just highlights how raw this squad is. I mean, we've got three debutants in a World Cup squad. So you've got Max Jorgensen, Isaac Fines, Leliawasa, and Blake Shop. And Max Jorgensen is not even fit for another three weeks. He's took another two, three weeks on his injury re- rehab. So... I guess, mate, my question to you with all that kind of statistical information or that background to this, has Eddie Jones shifted from his smash and grab for this World Cup and has he just set his sights firmly on the British and Irish Lions in 25 and the Home World Cup in 27? I would say yes if there weren't a couple of really interesting tweaks in this squad that lead me to believe he's still gunning for the boil over avoid boil overs. So we've obviously got a lot of youth in the squad and Eddie is signed on through to 2027. There's no doubt that he's got a long game in mind, but I keep coming back through this squad, through all the the amazing picks that we've seen because we are, I'm, I'm still amazed in every sense of the word. <laughs> but we've got a captain. We've got a captain who is specifically designed in my mind to win a tournament in France. If we go back to that slide, Will Skelton coming in as skipper is something that no one could have predicted into this game. I don't think anyone's putting their hand up and saying, I made this call. But the more I've thought about it, the more I like it. He has such vast experience winning tournaments, winning titles everywhere he's been as a player, from Super Rugby with the Tars to winning Prems and winning European trophies with Saracens and then again with La Rochelle. He is a superstar in Europe and he's a massively recognised and respected figure in France. And I I just like it. Whether I think it's just for the tournament. I can't see it as a long-term thing personally, but this might just be the most ridiculous call with the highest payoff mm. in the professional era for the Wallabies. 
Yeah, that's a really big statement. And I think what that speaks to is just still some of the hope that exists around this team, because you can definitely approach it from the perspective of the question I asked. It's like, what the hell is Eddie Jones thinking? But what you're pointing out there is that there is still an opportunity for key players within this team to step up. And with the pool, the draw that we have within both our pool and the side of the overall draw that we're on, it means that we're really like, well, unless things go dramatically wrong, we're going to get through to the quarters. Um, and then we're going to probably be up against Argentina. And you would be hoping that we'd be able to beat Argentina. You'd be hoping to get us into a semi and beating Argentina to get into a semi is very achievable. And so it just means that even if the language around smash and grab is gone, even if there is clearly a look to the future like you're speaking to, there's still the hope for now. And as we know, it's the hope that kills us, it's the hope that keeps us coming back. Um, but God, I just, I can't get away from the Kool-Aid that Eddie keeps pouring. So why don't we keep on jumping through? I mean, we're looking at the front row, the locks and the back row now, some really big names who are both present and omitted. So I'd like to just ask you, who do you think is the most uh, lucky to be included or conversely unlucky to be omitted? Yeah, we'll start with the front row because that's always the best place to start. They're the ones that command the most respect, or that's what they keep telling me. Um, <laughs> but we've got some pretty some pretty big names. I think people like Angus Bell, Taniela Tupo, James Slipper, and Dave Parecki were always going to be on that plane. Yep. I think that's been decided for a long time now. Players up there like Matty Fesler have played themselves onto the plane. His debut game, I know we mentioned it last week, but his debut showed that he's got what it takes. Yep. to truck it up with the best of them. And he had a great shift. So full credit to him. He's earned his way on too. Pono Famicilli probably in the same boat from yep, that shift great. in Dunedin. Showed enough that he deserves to be there. And here's where it gets interesting. Those final two propping spots with that Alan Alatoa and then that third hooking role. So we've got Zane Nongor, who's got two tests under his belt in probably two of the toughest places to play footy across the ditch and then debut in South Africa and then an untested um, international level, Blake Shot. I was surprised to see both of them picked. I thought that Sam Talakai might come in for a bit of experience, uh, a bit more seasoned. He's had experience playing on the spring tour last year, and he has really, in my mind, been an anchor for that Rebel scrum. I thought he played really well as a tight head throughout the year. So I think he's probably a little unlucky not to get shoulder tapped over Blake Shot, but I like what I've seen from shops so far this year. So, you know, it's a bit of column A, column B. The last name on that front row of this, though, Jordan Ulesi, in my mind, is more fortunate than the rest yep. to be on that plane. Yep. And it's because we've seen him get a number of chances throughout the year. And I'm not certain whether we can say he has totally stamped himself on a game through this TRC. But we are seeing that up in Darwin, there are three players who aren't in the World Cup squad who are training with them. One of those is a hooker, and that's Falau Fayangaa. So don't be surprised if there's real competition for Fayangaa pushing into that World Cup squad later in the piece. Yep. Do you know if... Uh, I, I know this is an off-the-cuff question, so you may not have the answer, but 
now that they've announced the squad, is that like an official announcement and there has to be an injury for a player to be withdrawn? Or is there a certain date until which we can still chop and change a squad prior to the arrival in France? I've no idea, to be honest. I mean, you mm. get to you know, sub plays in and out through injury. That's well understood. But whether you can change your mind, I don't see why not. It's, you know, changing a name on a hotel ticket and some a bit of accreditation. I'm yep. sure that it's possible if that decision is made. But, yeah, there's, there's three players up in Darwin at the moment, James O'Connor, uh, Falafanga and Tom Lambert, who are mm. all training with them as well. So, you know, maybe we see those players come into contention or be as part of that Australia A or Barbarians tour, which is coming up really quick. Yep. Well, let's move into the lock and back row. The lock selections are cut and dry. You don't really have anybody else that was a realistic uh, possibility for those four spots. Maybe Caden Neville was in the equation, but you can clearly understand why Arnold Frost, Philip and Skelton are the four locks who have been picked. And there's no real problem there. Tom Hoop is probably the backup lock if need be at short notice. So that's not an issue. But then you move into the back row and you've got Gleason, Hooper, uh, Tom Hooper, Leota, McWright and Valentini. So the major two individuals, or three, I should say, actually, uh, I'll add Jed Holloway in there, Michael Hooper and Pete Samu as the three that uh, would have traditionally been picked within that back row combination. In my mind, Gleason and Leota are the two who should consider themselves quite lucky to have been picked. Uh, Gleason, because of the lack of opportunity recently, he hasn't really been able to show his uh, abilities comparative to the others on a game day. Whereas Leota, like I mentioned last week, I just haven't rated him that much since his return this season. Um, He hasn't seemed to have got back to his ball-carrying best and I haven't seen as much from him as I would have wanted to keep a genuine back row utility like Pete Samu out of the frame. So, I mean, what do you feel for Pete Samu right now, mate? He's got married now, so he's using the time well. He certainly is. I do feel for him, though, and especially when we hear the rhetoric around we need players who play multiple positions. Pete Samu is a high-level super rugby player across 6, 7, and 8. So for me, when I look at that and compare it to a Rob Liotta, who is a specialist six to my mind, and then Langer Gleeson, who is a specialist eight, you're still not getting the coverage just looking on that without even getting them on the field. Pete Samu is already covering more bases. So I find that one interesting. But also we're looking at it through the frame of Eddie about who's around, who can I rely on for these next few years as well as a World Cup this year. And Langer Gleeson signed on, Rob Liotta signed on long deals. The, the one that you mentioned before, which I found really interesting, was Caden Neville because yeah. he is signed through to 2025 with Rugby Australia. And I thought he was a little unlucky. I'm not sure if there's a niggling injury. I recall for Australia A, there was some concern around a lower leg injury um, when he was over in Tonga. But he looked to get through his minutes fairly well. But, you know, with Will Skelton as captain now, the other three blokes are picking themselves. Maybe Matt Phillips, the fortunate one, Maybe. looking at it that way. But... But give we've got to rip this bandaid off. No Michael Hooper. Yeah. And uh, give me your first reactions, instant take. Oh, I felt horrible for the guy. Um, So a friend of mine is a family friend of the Hoopers. And it just makes me feel, although I definitely don't, that I have like a stronger connection to him as a person, like as, as a human being, not just as a professional rugby player. 
And for him to go out the way that he did with that horrible loss against Moana for the Waratahs and for them, for him to then finish, probably finish his international career this way is just devastating for somebody who has been the, the, the pinnacle of professionalism and effort within Australian rugby for the last decade. There is nobody else who has been as consistent a performer at an incredible level than Michael Hooper. And he deserves so much more than to miss the final World Cup opportunity that he had, um, probably because of lingering injury. And you just wonder, should Eddie have taken him on knowing he might have not made it for the first two games, but being able to come back for the tail end of the tail end of the pool stages? It's just not the way that his career should be ending. I took it hard, mate. I took it hard. It's it's a t- it's a tough thing to say. I think anyone with a heart probably looks at the effort and the the guts and the blood that Michael Hooper has poured into Wallaby Gold. For the better, for more than a decade now, he debuted twenty twelve and is you know often forgotten about as our longest ever Wallaby skipper. He's got more skipper caps than Gregan, for goodness sake. He's just mm-hmm. been a gladiator for so long. And I've had this argument a couple of times this week. People messaging in through Scrum Bag saying, "Oh, good, Michael Hooper's gone." And it's, regardless of whether you're picking him a squad or not, the man is a Wallaby legend. Yep, he absolutely is. One hundred twenty five caps. He's poured everything into the jersey at times where we haven't been so well and he's been the glue and the effort that's kept it together. So I I do feel for him as a rugby fan. I can see some of the logic of we're trying to bring this new crop through and this is the way forward. But I think you're kidding yourself if you're not feeling for Michael Hooper at the moment. Mitch, who wasn't able to be here, sent through a few comments for us to talk through. Um, now, I'm going to focus specifically on the Hooper comments before maybe I throw a couple of others at you. But Mitch says, quote, Hooper deserves to be included if close to fit, especially over Kemeny. His service to Australian rugby and experience deserves to be rewarded and respected. To drop him now is cruel and unfair. Now, I won't put you in a position for saying whether or not it's cruel and unfair, but it just shows the extent of emotion that um, someone who's who's like Mitch is, he's pretty balanced in a lot of the views and stuff that he puts out there. And it just shows the respect that Michael Hooper has within a lot of the Australian uh, public. Even if you don't agree with him being picked every time, maybe if you're a Reds fan and McWright should have been in there for the last 18 or 24 months or something like that, you can still acknowledge what a service Michael Hooper has done for Australian rugby. Now, um, one interesting element is the comment around Skelton's captaincy. Now, you were speaking before about maybe the French factor, the fact that he's played over for La Rochelle. He's had success at the Waratahs, La Rochelle and um, Saracens as well. Mitch says, Skelton's captaincy doesn't sit well with me at all. Rewarding a player who's left Australian rugby at the first available opportunity is a slap to the face to players who stuck it out here, e.g. Hooper or Slipper. What do you think of that one, mate? I think if they were going to go down that path, they would have given it to him straight away if there wasn't careful consideration about why is the right person. They went with Hooper and Slipper to start with. Hooper hasn't been selected. Slipper is now a senior player who's essential to play on both sides of the scrum if need be. So that's almost more responsibility now in James Slipper. I think Skelton 
and a lot of the media articles around this have touched upon it. I don't think he initially wanted the captaincy. He said that. You know, he's he been said that in the article, in, in the interview with exactly. Morgan Newey. Yep. Exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a shock, and he's this, this man mountain of Western Sydney kid, Samoan heritage. He's born in New Zealand. He's this mix and mash of cultures, and he, he's Australian at his heart, and he, regardless of what you make of his club status, this is a man who gets it, and he gets rugby. So we can say all we like about it doesn't sit well with you. But if Skelton's the one that brings us home a trophy, then it was the perfect call. And we don't know these things until we get to, what, early November and see who's brought Bill home. If it's us and it's Skelton, then it's the biggest payoff in rugby history, I would say. But if it's not, then it all comes back to Eddie and that decision. Very well said. And an interesting point that you make about kind of the experience that he does bring... He only has 28 international caps to his name, but where he does stand out is his provincial caps. So playing across both the Waratahs, Saracens, and then La Rochelle, he has amassed 210 provincial caps, many of them in incredibly high levels in good quality teams. And so it's only Nick White with 230 provincial caps who has more than him. So even though, yeah, he might not have had a solidified spot within the Wallaby squad over the last five to eight years, he has been playing high-level, high-quality rugby for a decade and has been excellent in those opportunities. So he brings experience from multiple countries, particularly, like you said, from France. So it's very understandable there. But why don't we jump into the backs now and the um, some pretty big news that was coming from the inside backs is the inclusion of Isaac Fiennes Leliwasa uh, and the omission of Ryan Lonigan, who for many had been seen as the more logical or the more um, the 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 scrum half who was most likely to be third picked at this point in time. What do you make of Isaac Fiennes Leliwasa's inclusion? Yeah, I was excited by it, actually. It was a funny one. I didn't expect to see his name anywhere near a World Cup sheet, but when I looked at it further, I thought in that any mindset of a quote-unquote utility, and that's what Isaac brings. He can he play is. wing at a yep. super rugby level. He's got wheels for days. And and further to that, he has been, you know, sort of conversely, we've talked about Skelton, you're playing away, but... Isaac finds that Wasa has battled his way through a lot of adversity by going over to the force during global rapid rugby and bouncing back and forth from the Brumbies and the force to get a shot. I feel like this is a bloke who's really earned his stripes on the domestic front. So to mm. see him get an opportunity is really exciting. But when I look at him being swapped out for Ryan Lonigan, I can't help but feel we may have missed a trick on our goal-kicking front. So we'll touch on Quaid not being there in just a tick, but... You know, we're left in this squad without a recognised regular goal kicker. And Ryan Lonigan, we've seen him pot him and pot him well for a couple of seasons now. So I think that that might really impact us at a time we don't want it to or need it to. Yep. Now, just quickly touching on the centres before we get into the fly half area. I think that having Fakedi, Karevi, Parisi and Pattaya are probably the best four centres you could have picked with the omission of Lenny Cattell because of his injury. And what I'm really excited to see is whether or not Fakedi and Parisi are just used as a pair, 
basically. So for the games against, uh, say, Portugal um, or against Georgia, where we actually we might actually have Fakedi and Parisi line up at 12 and 13, and then for Fiji and Wales, you have Karevi and Pattaya at 12 and 13. And the reason for that in my mind is the clear club connection that Fakedi and Parisi have playing at the Tars, and they are excellent together there um you may i wonder if you even have donaldson come in at 10 for the the matches where you've got for and parisi at 12 and 13 so you just have that waratah um access there maybe just throwing it out but moving really significantly to the fly half position carter gordon is the only listed fly half quade cooper has been omitted Goal kicking, backups in case Carter Gordon goes down at the last minute. I mean, there's a huge risk here that Eddie Jones is taking. Massive, massive. And that's only on the goal kicking front. We haven't even talked about, you know, whether Quaid should be there for his experience, for his leadership, for his game management. I know that he's been much maligned this year as not having the same impact as he first did, blasting back in 2021 and rolling the box a couple of times. But, I mean, you know, this is a player who I think almost everyone expected to be on the plane, who's suddenly not there and not being the mentor for a young 10 like Carter Gordon. So I, I still am in shock a little bit that we're not seeing Quaid on the plane. But, you know, what an extraordinary amount of responsibility and with that opportunity for someone like Carter Gordon. I mean, Ando, this is a, the biggest moment of this young man's rugby career by far. Without a doubt. And he's shown the capacity to step up um, in the big moments. I mean, there, there have been nerves. There have been mistakes. And yet he has he has improved in every opportunity that he's had. And so the question is whether he has the uh, innate qualities or characteristics to be able to continue that forward momentum in terms of performances in the biggest high pressure environment in world rugby, which is the rugby world cup. And I just hope he does. I hope he has. And if he needs to continue to grow out the mullet so he can be like the biblical Samson where his strength comes from the length of his mullet, then I think Australian society should take one for the team and let him do that. But moving into the outside backs, the two biggest calls within the outside backs are the inclusion of Max Jorgensen and Sullivan Vali. So Max Jorgensen has played, I believe, what, 11 first-class games. Yeah, 11 first-class games will be debuting during the World Cup if he even gets onto the field. And it just, to me, seems like an unnecessary gamble for a player who is still not fit and is a couple of weeks away from returning to full training. Yeah, it's a huge call, both of them. Well, I think we'll start We'll start with Jorgensen. Having such a young body go through the rigours of international rugby, we saw during, oh, sorry, super rugby, we saw during this year, it worked against him. So he's been thrown in, you know, for whatever reason early um, with the TARS personnel problems. And he got through, I think, six games and then went down and was able to make it back through the year. But... I mean, this is a gamble that has huge ramifications because it's a spot that could have been taken, you know, by any number of these people that we've talked about. It could have been a Michael Hooper. It could have been a Quade Cooper. It could have been someone like a Reese Hodge who plugs 10 to 15 or a Tom Wright who has had really, really good moments 
as a fullback and as a winger for both Brumbies and Wallabies for a long time. It's also come at the expense of someone uh, like a Jock Campbell, who is a, a specialist 15, and we're only carrying one of those, really, in Andrew Kellaway at the moment. So there are, there are so many avenues that the outside backs could have gone down, and the last person I expected to be in that score was Max Jorgensen. Super exciting. There's huge upside for him for the next decade or even longer if we're lucky enough to have him around and fulfil this path that's being laid out for him. But, yeah, especially with the injury and not being right for a couple of weeks, I mean was the same, I guess, allowance made for someone like a Michael Hooper. It's a, mm. it's a huge call, Ando. Yep. Yeah, I mean, as you're saying that, part of me is just, uh, I've got my Waratahs blue lenses on right now. But I'm just thinking, imagine if against one of the um, one of the Tier 2 teams, such as Georgia or Portugal, you have like Lange Gleeson at number 8, Ben Donaldson at 10, Fakedi at 12, Parisi at 13, Noangani Tawase at 14, and Jorgensen at 15. <laughs> Half the team would be Waratahs. And as a team, they were not deserving of that uh, throughout this Super Rugby season. So it would just be so fascinating to, to, to see if um, Eddie Jones went down that path of having club players uh, playing alongside each other within the um, within the less crunch games for Australia. But we need we need to get to it. Sullivan Ovalu, I I need to be careful in how I say this because none of my opinions about him are about him as a person or a human being. He could be the best bloke, and I wouldn't know because I've never met him and and I've never had any interactions with him. I've heard. He's working really hard and doing extras and trying to trying to get himself in the best position available to have excellent games. But in every performance that he's had so far for the Wallabies, he has not shown enough, in my opinion, to be on this plane, especially at the cost of someone like Tom Wright, as he said. Or I'm going to be completely honest and say Dylan Peach is a better winger than Sullivan Avalu at this point in time. And the fact that you're not picking... Like he's, he's a dedicated winger, so just swap him out for Peach if you're doing that. Or swap him out, like you said, for a utility player like Reese Hodge. And it solves so many problems. So why has he been selected by Eddie Jones? Uh, and what do you think... Well, yeah, what do you think Eddie Jones sees within the performances he can put out that deserve him being on the plane? It's, it's such a tough one because... For mine, the 14 jersey is no longer need what I say is to lose. And the same threats that Marky Mark poses, his um, aerially offensive ability, he can diffuse the high ball, he can bump tackles, and he's got legs for days. So he's an out-and-out running aerial winger. That's the same mould as Suliasi Vinavali, right? We saw through his career the storm that he was brilliant at taking the ball above his head, a sort of Izzy Falao-style player who can get up high, who can get an arm free. But we've we've got that. We've got that in Marky Mark. Yes, if Marky Mark goes down, you're probably thinking style of play. Vunavalu is the best like-for-like replacement for that rangy, tall, aerial offensive weapon. But he's he's got so much to prove and so much to live up to by being picked in this squad now. You have seen him play... He's played two games, right? He's had the couple of minutes against England minutes, yeah. uh, last year. And then he had the game against um, Springboks where he was well and truly outplayed by Aronson. You know, Aronson scoring a hat-trick. You can't say that he even got close to him. So there is so much to prove 
for Vunivalu now. You know, we know that he came over on a big contract. We know that he took unders to stick around and be in World Cup contention. He has to have a blinder. It's not a ridiculous thing to say that he might not play again in Wallaby Gold if he does not produce the form that we have now expected and probably deserve from him. The yep. amount of investment and interest and goodwill that's been put into Vunivalu, that needs to be paid back in whatever respect it is, whether it's as a team man and he's one of those five that um, Eddie always talks about as being the glue that holds the squad together. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Perhaps that is his role, but it's an enormous call to leave behind some of the players we've mentioned, like your Hodges, like your uh, Wrights. Those two just stand out to me as, you know, regardless of what you think of their capacity, you match it with Vunivalu's output in a gold jersey and you say they're probably coming up ahead. So just massive, massive calls in the outside backs, Ando. Mate, it's just crazy. It's just hard to, like we said at the start, wrap our heads around. And so I guess in summary, we're taking an inexperienced team to the Rugby World Cup. 26 of the squad, it will be their first Rugby World Cup ever. The average age is 26. The player caps is 20. It just shows the the lack of experience that we're taking in. And so that means this team could either do everything or nothing, in my mind. Um, and, and we're either going to go all the way or pretty darn close to, or there's going to be some horrible results <laughs> within the pool stages and we crash out in pretty insipid or limp form. Uh, so uh, I don't know even what to do with this, but but it's so soon, mate. The, the Rugby is. World Cup is kicking off for us at 5am on Saturday, September 9. So it's less than four weeks away and the opening match will be France versus New Zealand and Australia is on on a Sunday morning at 2am Australia versus Georgia. So for me, mate, I think it's the perfect time for us to be diving into our conversation around some of the international matches that have been happening. And to start us off, I thought I'd actually show show you and for anybody watching the video on YouTube, the results from the first weekend of what's called the Summer Nation Series over in the over in Europe, over in the UK. And you had Scotland coming up against France in the first of their two match series, and Scotland got up twenty five to twenty one. Wales pumped England, or well, pumped actually it wasn't that an impressive a game but wales won 20 to 9 against england and ireland uh performed fairly well against italy 33 to 17 so any quick comments that you'd like to make on those three games mate uh in particular the welsh and Ing the welsh and the irish games very dour yeah. very dour games Our yeah. irish put out what was essentially an island a team um as in their resis and they just went to a pick-and-drive, really tight forward play and ended up just going through the middle against the Italians, who, to their credit, had some really good tries, um, the Italians out wide. So that was the most interesting of the three. The Scotland game was fun in the sense that the Scots got up over France, but again, very much a France reserve team. So this week, which we'll chew into in just a tick, the results were much more interesting. Yeah, definitely. And I'll quickly just say the um, Wales-England game was pretty dour. I watched the mini for it and the mini for last night's game too. And um, it, it, it gives me some hope coming up against them because I don't think Wales are in the best form at the moment. Uh, England have just been pretty poor 
too. So it does show where both teams are at comparatively. But I might hand it over to you, mate, as we go to the next slide and you can run the show from here. Yeah, we'll start with the English and the Welsh game, which was back at Twickenham. And for those who haven't seen it yet, let me start by asking you not to. Do not waste your time watching this game. It Agreed. was one of the worst games of rugby I've ever sat through. The opening hour was rubbish. And that's the kindest way I can put it. I was 6-0 at halftime, uh, yellow cards all over the shop, um, horrible discipline around the ruck and terrible defence for that first hour. And then the final 20 minutes completely flipped around and it was the most insane finish I've seen to a rugby game in a long time. We had a penalty try and a yellow card um, going the Welsh's way with Freddie Stewart taking out Josh Adams um, in the air right next to the try line. The Welsh then went 70 metres and forced a uh, yellow card that became red for Owen Farrell doing his trademark shoulder charge to the head. And so the Welsh go up 17 uh, nine with 15 minutes to play and and another yellow card to Ellis Cannon. So they're playing against 12 yep. minutes and then they lost it. They lost a game with a three-player advantage and an eight-point lead and I don't know how they did it still. It was a comedy of errors the whole way through. Eventually, um, uh, Mara Tojo scoring, you know, in the last few minutes, uh, late George Ford penalty, but I saw nothing, Ando, from either of these sides that has me fearful of meeting them in a knockout game. Mate, what really excited me was that Wales, when they had a three-man advantage, did not score any more points than their opposition during that time. So Wales got a try. Yeah, okay, good. And then they let one in as well. So it was seven all within that period of play where there were three that a three-man advantage. And that was just ridiculous. Horrible play from the Welsh. Um, in a way, well done England for keeping it tight and just barging over with a line-out more. Um, shows how overpowered those are. When a man down, you can still push over and get the try. <laughs> um, but why don't we move... Oh, actually, the other thing I want to say before we move on to the France-Scotland game, how good is it to have Owen Farrell get done for one of his reckless high shots that he always does. He always starts low and then rises up into the tackle with his shoulder and collects, can't remember who the player was, one of the, or collects the player in the head, gets yellow carded immediately, reviewed red. I think he's probably going to get a four to six week ban if it wasn't right before a World Cup and that kind of mitigation comes into play. So he might miss... I'm not sure if he's even going to be able to be kept in the squad at this point. Sure, you just go with Marcus Smith and George Ford as your two kind of halves and just go with them if Owen Farrell's out for the majority of the time. Oh, no, they'll, they'll keep him in somehow. Boring. They'll tweak it and keep him in. He's the captain of the squad, um, their preferred pivot. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing a situation where it's, you know, a six-game ban, but three for good behaviour, even though he's got a track record you know, longer than the Bruce Highway coming back on his shoulder charges. It's it's dreadful. He's just got the worst record, and it would give me great joy to see him actually punished for this long yeah. history of running into people shoulder first. It's just it's just daft, truly. But what's worse is that when he went off and George Ford came on, George Ford did a much better job steering the ship. 
and he is a great pivot in his own right. And then Marcus Smith is, you know, mercurial at times. So, you know, whether or not he misses out probably on a decent chunk of pool games and if Farrell pops back up in a final, if they make it that far, well, we're not that surprised. That's kind of how the world rugby processes can work these days. Yeah, just wait for them to schedule a couple of training matches uh, in like the one... Yeah, close, close game against up. Portugal. Yeah, yeah, something like that, something like that. Um, okay, France-Scotland, talk us through that. It was a good good start. We saw an Aussie in that game, actually. We saw Nick Berry running around with the whistle, mm-hmm. and it was a good tight game for him to get under his belt as well because it was absolutely popping off at St. Etienne. Um, and the Scots coming off their win in the first game, admittedly against a much more inexperienced French side, um, got out to a fantastic start. They were out 7-0, a great try to Kyle Stain, one of the many South African Scots that's been recruited, um, heading out that way. Um, so the backs are looking really sharp with Finn Russell steering the ship and players like Duane van der Merwe, Darcy Graham. They've got really tight players around there. But the French produced one of the best passages of play just around half time, where DuPont for whatever reason, decided to finally switch on. He actually kicked the ball so hard at one point that it exploded. I'm not sure if you saw any footage of this, Ando. Is that like literally? Yes, he popped the ball. He kicked it (laughs) so hard that he popped the ball. And when it was caught by, I think, Blair Kinghorn at the back, it was entirely deflated. It's one of the strangest things I've ever seen on a footy field. You'll have to go um, pull up some footage. I'll send it through and we can share it through pick and drive. But he kicked the air out of the ball, That's Antoine Dupont. So drug test him immediately. Put him through whatever ring is because he's bionic. Something, Something's in him and it's not human. He's incredible. So aside from kicking the absolute bejeebas out of the ball, he then orchestrated two tries in the space of about two minutes um, set play, he did a one-two with Entermac to send his um, Toulouse teammate over. He then did a short line-out to set up um, Damien Pinnell and then did it again with Thomas Ramos. The connections that they've got are just mm. incredible. And so I think three tries in the space of about a 10-minute block. He almost had a fourth. So, I mean, really, it was this French blitz in the middle, and that's what they're so good at, scoring a large block of points quickly very, you know, in that New Zealand mould of sort of smashing yeah. frenzied attack. Um, but the Scots, to their credit, they came back really well. They scored another two tries in the last exchanges and they would have they would have won at the end of the day if Finn Russell had kicked all his conversions. So what I took out of that was that France, when they're at the best, are easily the best rugby team in the world. Their ceiling in attack is so high and they're so strong over the ball. We saw time and time again they were able to get over the pill. Um, their hooker on the day was excellent. The whole back row can pilfer, um, and they just shut down that Scottish breakdown. So that's where it's going to be massive. But the Scots, to their credit, two really good games against the French, regardless of personnel. And you're suddenly looking at that pool B with South Africa, with Ireland, with Tonga, with Scotland. Scotland being the forgotten team in there in some respects. I've got a good feeling about the Scots heading to this World Cup, and I don't think I'm too surprised if they cause one of the big upsets and make it through to a quarter. That would be amazing, and by everything that is good and holy, I hope that it is against Ireland, because nothing (laughs) would bring me more joy, except for us winning, than Ireland getting knocked out of a World Cup early yet again with um, them having these incredible performances against New Zealand in New Zealand, these amazing seasons in between World Cups and yet failing to perform again at the Rugby World Cup. So here's hoping... 
here's hoping that feeling that you have comes true. But you did want to talk about this next match between Romania and Georgia. So why don't you take us through that before we start wrapping things up? Oh, very, very briefly. And it's only because it popped up um, as I was having a quick um, scroll doing some research before the game. Seeing the Georgians put 50-plus on another World Cup side is a real scare. We're talking about, you know, we've got to beat Wales, we've got to beat Fiji. The game that we had against Georgia in 2019, it took Marika Korobetti running something silly like 70 metres by himself and taking that game away from the Georgians in pool play before we eventually kicked on. Georgia are going to be such a tough game for everyone in that pool. And the fact that now it's not just a, oh, we've got big forwards and big set piece, we can score tries at will. Yes, it's against Romania. Yes, it's at their home patch in Tbilisi. But far out, we've got so many dark horses in this World Cup now. And to see the Georgians come out as a team that can now put on points as well, I think we should be putting one of our strongest, if not our strongest side out against Georgia come game one of the World Cup, Ando. Yeah, and I'm just going back through and checking out their recent um, their recent results. So uh, they obviously pumped Romania 56-6. They beat Portugal 38-11, beat Romania 31-7, beat Spain 41-3, Netherlands 40-8, Georgia 70, uh, Germany 75-12. But then the big one, if you remember this last year, they beat Wales 13-12 to in Wales at Principality Stadium. In uh, Wales? Yeah. Yeah, it was one of the matches of the Autumn Nation series. And then they only only went down by one point to Samoa as well, uh, 19 to 20. So it's just showing that they, they've, they've got an upset in them. And we all know the strength of the Georgian forward pack. I mean, all of them are tight heads. You've you got locks who are actually just tight heads. Um, mm. And they are just... <laughs> unbelievable in the strength that they bring within that area. And so if we don't play the right style of game to minimize those set-piece opportunities for them, um, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. I mean, I mean, we should win. We should, even without our first team, we should win. But oh, they sure. are a challenge. They are a challenge. It's going to be tough. And in many ways, it's the best game for us to have up front because we're going to get brutalized. We're going to get bashed up. And it's great preparation for Fiji and it's great preparation for Wales as well to have that physicality. Mm. So do we do we pick a big side that just tries to, you know, mash with the Georgians or do we pick a more mobile side to run them off their feet? I'd be going with the latter, but um, we're lucky enough we don't have to make those decisions. It's not our next on the line. Uh, and uh, But a couple of results to finish out. There are a couple of other games going on. Um, we had Portugal, who's in our pool. Uh, they beat the US 46-20 to 20 in a rematch of their qualification game. And good to see uh, Oslobos racking up a score as well. So I'm interested to see how our Aussie A side goes against them. And then obviously when we meet them in our final pool game. And finally, in the battle of the real heavy hitters of the World Cup, Chile and Namibia had a warm-up game. And Namibia got the Chockeys 28 points to 26 um, with one of our boys, uh, Dickie Hardwick, having a good run around for the Welsh Witches. So good to see some warm games happening. And I'm just, I'm so excited. There's a bit of Tilly's fever. There's a bit of Eddie Kool-Aid, but it's mostly the fact that we're less than a month out from a World Cup. I'm so excited. And on that note, let's wrap things up. So Lockie, it's been an absolute pleasure being here with you, my friend. And to Mitch as well, 
miss you mate hope for you to be able to join us in the next pod everybody who has made it through to this point thank you so much for joining us on this really precursor to the rugby world cup I'm very excited to maybe dive a little bit deeper into some of the teams within our pool that we're likely to come up against in the coming weeks so thank you everybody have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time bye bye